Hello and welcome to the Giving Voice to Depression podcast, produced in partnership with the A.B. Corcor Foundation for Mental Health. I'm Terry, the creator and co-host of this podcast. I've lived with depression most of my life, and I know how easy it can be to feel all alone in the experience. I'm not alone, and you aren't either. And I'm Dr. Anita Sands, a licensed clinical psychologist and life coach with a number of my own diagnoses, all of which bring a certain amount of anxiety and depression along with them. There is great power in shared experiences. We share our own as we engage in intimate and candid conversations with our weekly guests, exploring different perspectives on and experiences with depression. We keep it real because depression is real. We keep it hopeful because there truly is hope in spite of what depression tells you. Hello, Anita. Hi, Terry. Today, we're going to do a deep dive into one of the main reasons that people who suffer with depression do not get help. We named this episode, You Don't Have Depression and You Always Will, because those are two of the common lies that depression tells us. And if you think of depression as an enemy that's trying to defeat us, convincing us of those two things is a brilliant move on its part. Because if we don't think we have depression, then we believe that we're just uniquely flawed, broken, and weak, instead of valuable humans with a common and treatable illness. That's doubly true when you pile on another one of depression's powerful lies that we're always going to feel the way that we do when we are in the grips of depression. Because then, especially given our limited energy, what's the point of doing anything to try to feel better or think better? Our guest, Barry Winbolt, has experienced depression himself, supported a partner who has had very serious bouts of depression, and as a psychotherapist, he has worked with people with depression for decades. He has coined the phrase, the logic of depression, to explain why somebody who's depressed quote, will tenaciously cling to a negative view of the world or interpretation of events, even though there is plenty of evidence to the contrary, unquote. Here now is Barry Winbolt giving his voice to depression. Barry's depression first surfaced, as it often does, in his teens. That went off and on probably till I was in my second part of my 30s. I was over 35. And, you know, I'd soldiered on. I had, uh, I'd started businesses. I was doing okay in life, a uh, young family and all of that. But I wasn't a bundle of fun to live with some of the time. And um, my attitude to that was, well, I know how to deal with this. I know that I'm not particularly fun to be around at the moment, but I'm not d- complaining to you. I'm just miserable you know and so leave me to get on with it and above all don't try and make me better because that just winds me up it drives me mad with people you know doing all the things they might do either either cutting off from me or saying cheer up or whatever you know in his personal experience studies and professional practice barry has found that trying to persuade someone who's depressed that their view of themselves and the world could change is usually a waste of time. Like anybody who's lived or worked with anybody who's suffering from depression, I got pretty frustrated, I have to say, with the kind of distorted logic that people would be expressing themselves through. 
well, yes, I, I could go out and get a job, but what's the point? Because I'll just get depressed again and then I won't be able to keep the job up. And I used to say things like, well, do you think that you're the only person who has these, you know, how do you think you're different from me, for example, or from the next person who doesn't want to go to work one day? What is it? I genuinely wanted to understand what is, and I still don't, what is it that stops the person who is suffering from depression from doing stuff? Obviously, there are degrees, there are degrees of depression. Barry makes clear he's not directing this advice or information at people on the deeply depressed end of the spectrum. For the rest of us, though, this information could be really helpful because we all know where believing depression's lies leads us, and it's not good. So... I can be fairly direct with people on the basis that if something's harming you, you need to stop it. You know, don't wait for this just to lift. You might have to do something like change some aspect of your life. But if you've got this false logic telling you all the time that it's not going to work or that uh, you're not worth it or that you've had a hard childhood, which undoubtedly many people have, and I'm not denying that, but is that sufficient justification to keep ruining your life now when there are options open to you? And now, speaking to you now, that might sound a little bit hardline, and of course I'm not that blunt with people, but I am pretty direct, because if somebody is desperate, and they've very often been through this with other therapists and counsellors, and very often had a disappointing experience, they don't come to me to do more of the same, and I talk to them in those terms. That false logic, research finds, is the distinguishing factor between people who stay depressed and those who don't. How we view the world and explain things to ourselves is a key factor in whether we accept or reject depression's lies. The name for the thinking style that comes with depression and discourages us from taking action and getting help is called attributional or explanatory style, and it includes the three P's. If somebody has an attributional style that is personal, pervasive, and permanent, they are prone, more vulnerable to the effects of depressive thinking and more vulnerable to depression. So what does it mean? It means I fail an exam. That's personal. I failed the exam, therefore I'm to blame. That's my fault. Many people wouldn't disagree with that. Nothing wrong with that. But when you then add to that... It's pervasive. This isn't restricted to this one exam or even to exams in general. This is restricted to life. It means anything I try is likely to fail. And we then compound that by coming up with stories about confidence and self-esteem and all that, fed by very very vociferous media, I have to say. So, you know, is it helpful to believe you don't have confidence? Is it helpful to believe you're depressed? That's an open question, but I'll qualify those things. It's certainly not helpful if it's stopping you moving forward in your life. So pervasive, permanent, personal. So it's personal because it, I failed the exam. It's my fault. It's pervasive because it affects all areas of my life, not just the one exam. It's permanent because it won't change because this is how I am. This is part of me. You know, when the, when the symptoms become part of us, they're harder to tackle. It may sound a bit academic, but we're going to ask you to trust us and stick with this. Because noticing our thought patterns and using that awareness to challenge and change them can make a difference, which is why we're doing this episode. Take the failed exam, for example. Think of how different this approach 
would sound and feel. In contrast with that, somebody who doesn't have the same negative attributional style might fail the exam and think, it's not personal in that it's not part of me. It's just something I did, which was stupid. I didn't work hard enough. So, yeah, I beat myself up. Yes, I failed. But I don't slide into a worse place because I know that I've just got to do better in future. But, you know, it doesn't dictate the rest of my life. So, likewise, it isn't permanent. It's localized to just that event. And therefore, I can do something about it. I have control. And finally, it's not global. It doesn't relate to all areas of my life. Because I failed an exam doesn't mean I'm a bad person or I'm an incapable person. The negative thought snowball rolling down the hill is stalled. It doesn't have the momentum to keep going and growing. Now, if you apply that to depressive thinking, I'm suffering from depression. And by the way, who told me I'm depressed? That's always a question I'm going to ask people because there's no such thing as a single entity of depression. Every form of depression is different in every person. We all experience it differently. So, yeah, there's some global characteristics, but let's find out first for me to find out from the client what they mean when they use that word and where they learned the word, because quite often it's been handed to them by somebody, by a professional, uh, in, w with good intent, well-meaning, of course, but it's not, it's not good when it becomes part of your identity, when it becomes a label you carry around with you. So I'm wondering what we do. So what if we notice that in ourselves? What if we hear that in someone we love or are involved with in some way who's saying, I blank, so I'm a loser, I don't have worth, I'm all the things that we consider our depression to tell us, maybe we're telling us, how do we change that? How do we challenge that? How do we get out of that habit right. if that's what it is? That's a really good question because I don't think I would ever believe or think that somebody is telling themselves that. I, I, I externalize the depression at that point. I say, look, the depression is telling you this. The depression is like, to, to use a metaphor, the depression is like a virus. Now, what does a virus want to do? We've got visible evidence of that recently, haven't we? A, violence, yeah. a, a virus wants to self-propagate. It wants to produce more of itself. It wants to self-perpetuate. It wants to get stronger. And if you think about depression like that, it becomes your adversary. You think, okay, what is this doing to me that it wants to limit? Anxiety works in a similar way. It wants to limit, uh, it wants to take over so that, you know, it doesn't want us to prove it wrong. One way depression does that, Barry says, is by speaking to us in a way that persuades us that listening to it is our best course of action. Barry teaches his clients three things to do to shut it up and shut it down. The first is to challenge it. So when we have a thought that says, I'm worthless, well, show me the evidence. I have an exercise for that. I get people to, to daily write down the successes they've had that, that day in their life because clearly they're not worthless. I mean, clearly that's a lie. Nobody's worthless. How can that be true? So why would you be going along with that thought? But you will go along, one will go along with that thought unless one has learned how to push back a bit. And, mm -hmm. and shut it down and stop it taking you over. Um, it is a battle for territory in a way. I don't like, you know, warlike metaphors, but in a way it is. It creeps in and it wants to colonize your mind. And if you let it, it will. So obviously there has to be a bit of pushback. The second way is to acknowledge the negative thoughts. And in Barry's words, 
get on with what you're going to do anyway. He offers the example of a client with a very abusive family history that left her traumatized and unable to exercise, which is affecting her health. She knows she should get back to exercise, but she's got a whole set of stories about why she can't. And so our conversation was about, I understand and validate your stories. I'm not denying them for a moment, but how about if you did it anyway? You know, how about despite those stories, you made it your task, your mission, your whatever, for the next week to walk twice a day for 15 to 20 minutes. And you make a commitment to yourself to do that. Um, because we know that exercise benefits, but because that will show the person in their own mind that they can do something different and that they can start to change the pattern that's been dominating their life. It will show us that we can do something different and that we can start to change the patterns that have been dominating our lives, which will also boost our self-beliefs and self-esteem. But if you can find these little incremental things that you can do to empower yourself to push back, then it will certainly lift because depression mm -hmm. cannot coexist with other stuff, more positive stuff. It just can't. And the third thing Barry says we can do is learn to coexist with depression. Something I learned very powerfully when my late wife died after a long illness some several years ago. And, um, you know, I was undoubtedly not in a good place at that time. But I still had to carry out my responsibilities, which meant, meant school runs, mm -hmm. meals, and running a home and all the rest of it. So I was lost totally but I compartmentalized it and I, I was able to therefore say, I'm not getting rid of this bad feeling, but I'm just not doing it right now. It's beside me, it's with me, I'm carrying it around. I've got quite enough to get on with without worrying about that and I'll do my stuff, but I know that I can go back into that if I need a bit of doom and gloom and a bit of self-pity or a bit of real sadness or a bit of appreciation of what I've lost uh, or whatever else I need to feel deep sadness and and just unexplainable pain then i can go and do that but there's a special place for it barry acknowledges that all of this can be hard to hear and do when we're really in it for those times he says you don't have to see the light at the end of the tunnel but you do have to know it's there and that you can someday get to it but I, the essential point i just want to leave it on is I love talking about this topic. I get very frustrated that it isn't more... We, we, depression is one of the most studied conditions of human existence. So what's going on, you know, that we haven't, haven't cracked it yet? Yeah. But I do think the mystery ingredient from, from successfully moving on isn't as simple as somebody like me saying, you know, it's very much down to the individual finding the magic key themselves in some way. And... That often happens in therapy, but I'm sure it happens as well without therapy. When you said a missing piece is, I believe you used the word conversation. In my experience doing this now, this is my seventh year, uh, I think that being able to tell your story, being able to, to have someone hold it and make space for it and to not judge it. And you, I mean, you do this as a therapist. I'm not a therapist. But I think there's something in being heard and being understood and being believed that is really yeah. healing because otherwise it's sort of the what have you got to be sad about nonsense that we hear all the time. Yeah, absolutely. Do you know, I would say that 
I know 60-70% of my work in a session is about normalizing and reframing. Hmm. It's about saying, oh, you have that too. Oh, it's not some terribly scary thing. This is part of the human condition. Yes. And then what are we going to do about it? Uh, because that's really what it's about, isn't it? If people come in to me, and I can hear when the needle goes in the groove, to use old technology as a metaphor, you know, I can hear they've told that story 50 times, 50,000 times before mm. to themselves and others. When that needle goes in the groove, I don't want to hear that story. So interesting. You're just rehearsing and reinforcing everything you've said before. And you're re it's not, not harming me, but it's reinforcing it in your own mind. Find a different, you know, if there's one thing we can change, it's the narrative of our lives, which comes back to attribution style. You know, we can, we can change the meaning around the story. We can change the story to create new meaning. And that, I think, is, holds great hope. So, Anita, for me, this is one of those episodes that I realize you sort of have to be in the mood to accept its messages. And when I did the interview, to be really honest, I was, I was so there. I was like, yes, yes, mm -hmm. this is helpful. This is good. I can use this information. And then in the weeks <laughs> between then and now, I just was not. And I found myself thinking... That that wasn't the time for me to produce the episode and put it together because I was unable to get the distance that I needed to mm. actually challenge mm -hmm. some of my thoughts and, and habits. I am feeling more myself now. And once again, I'm back to seeing the value in Barry's teachings. And also, I have used them in real life, in real time. And one of the things that I have said to myself aloud is, hey, what if we do it anyway, Terry? I know you don't feel like taking that walk. I know you don't feel like getting out of bed, whatever it is. What if we do it anyway? Mm -hmm. And then this weekend, I was able to use it again. I was in a record store. There aren't a lot of those around anymore with someone who struggles a lot. And I told him the metaphor that Barry uses about when your needle gets stuck in the groove and you are just repeating what you have always repeated, both to yourself and to other people, and how non-productive that is. And it led to a really interesting conversation. So I just want to acknowledge that there are so many ways that this information is not just a listen to it once for 20 minutes and put it aside kind of information. I think that you can sort of let it seep in a little bit in our psychic sponge and see if there isn't a time that some of these concepts come back to us and are useful. Yeah, it's it, to me, this is one of those episodes that I would probably tell people to come back to, um, you know, maybe every month, every other month and, and see what is resonating. Um, I think the information in here is just priceless. It's the stuff that as a therapist, you know, you're, you're really hoping at some point will, you know, the light bulb will turn on, it will stick. Um, it, it's this idea, you know, that depression just doesn't want anything to change, period. Um, this idea that he brought up, we externalize it, you know, as this virus, as something right. that's trying to perpetuate itself, it's trying to control you, um, so that then you can challenge it. Um, that whole 
question of, you know, what if you did it anyway is brilliant and, and can just lead to you doing something, anything different. That's, that's what we're always saying. Do something, anything different. And then this idea that sometimes you live with it. Sometimes you work with it. With anything chronic, illness, anxiety, depression, you sometimes have to go through life like you're in a three-legged race. You know, you got to put your arm around this thing. You don't have to like it, but you have to put your arm around it and you have to say, okay, I'm going to move forward with you. We might go more slowly, but we're going, we're going, come on, we're going. Um, We're not going to try to get rid of it all the time. Sometimes we're going to challenge it. We're going to try to leave it behind. We're going to try to diminish it. Sometimes we're going to put our arm around it and say, come on, we're going, we're going Mm -hmm. together. Um, There's just really, really good stuff here. It's, It's the good stuff. And we did a different episode a couple of years ago about absolutist language, which was called the language of depression. Mm-hmm. And this information is different than, but very similar to some of what that researcher was talking about. And that's when we start thinking in or hearing someone speaking in those mm-hmm. totally black and white f- phrases that have no room for gray or for subtleties, that it's, I will always be alone. I will always have depression. Everyone thinks I'm stupid or a burden or whatever. Um, and, and just that whole list of words that just have no give. And that that thinking and speaking also indicates and perpetuates a depressive state. Mm-hmm. Once you learn the ways to analyze your own self-talk and your thought process, it gets harder for depression to stay. And that's the whole point. So I'm going to repeat okay. and agree with your idea of coming back to this episode a couple times and seeing mm-hmm. if at a future time something else doesn't seep in that might be helpful to you. Because a lot of the people who are listening do not have access to a really good therapist. I mean, we have you, Anita, but there mm-hmm. is a, a need for this kind of information and we don't all have access to it. So I am grateful to the two therapists in this episode, you and Barry. So thank you. And we'll be back next week with another episode. We truly hope that our podcast brings a little more understanding, helps you better articulate and reflect on your own experience with depression, or better understand how to support someone else who is struggling. If this episode has been of comfort or value to you, know that there are hundreds of others like it in our archive, which you can easily find at our website, givingvoicetodepression.com. And remember, if you're struggling, speak up, even if it's hard. If someone else is struggling, take the time to listen 